direction of the security forces earlier. You're listening to the news on RTHK. trend for the last two to five years. Part of financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotrahora. Technology shares lead a slump in U.S. stocks. Qualcomm announces job cuts and Apple sinks. Sands China profit beats estimates on a mass market share gains. And mainland stocks rise, but business confidence on the mainland slumps to its lowest level in more than six years. Well, walking us through the markets this morning is Michael Gibbs-Harris from New Zealand. And after that, uh, IHS Global Insights' Rajiv Biswas talks about the impact of the Iran deal on business. And last, uh, Bloomberg News' Enda Curran will compare the economies of Japan and China. Tobias Hexter is back in the chair as guest host. Good morning, Tobias. Good morning, Renita. Tobias, are the glory days of Apple over? People have predicted the death of Apple so many times that I wouldn't take it in one go. But uh, everybody could see that uh, their numbers were disappointing. Now, Tobias, you've been gone a couple of weeks on vacation. Were you shocked or surprised or also meh uh, to come back and find out what's been happening with markets? It's unbelievable what a difference two weeks makes. Uh, Two weeks ago, the world was in panic. Greece was terrible. um, China was in a free fall. And now complacency rules. If you look at the price of movement embedded in options, they're back at nearly all-time levels for most markets. Is it really complacency, though? I mean, is that uh, the accurate descriptor? Yeah, I would say Greece is not necessarily solved. Uh, The phrase for that is kicking the can down the road and not even that far. And of course, uh, September, we get the U.S. interest rates, which is a lot of cheddar traffic, but in the markets, nobody seems to care. <laughs> okay, markets are decoupling themselves, perhaps, uh, with uh, from everything that's happening elsewhere. The European uh, Central Bank has increased its financial lifeline to Greek banks by 900 million euros. The emergency cash injection, the ECB's second in a week, is designed to keep the banks afloat until a rescue package is concluded. Meanwhile, Greek Parliament has begun debating major changes to the banking and judicial sectors, which need to be approved before talks with Greece's creditors begin on a new 86 billion euro deal. Speaking during a meeting with the head of the Greek Banking Association earlier, Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras said that he hoped to protect Greece's most vulnerable members of society when the reforms were implemented. What's important right now is that the system returns back to normal. And at the same time, we have to ensure that our vulnerable citizens will not be harmed by these new austerity measures. 
Well, U.S. stocks notched their second decline in uh, as many days uh, yesterday, pulled down by technology stocks, um, slumped, slumping headlines, headlined by Apple and Microsoft. Both companies had delivered disappointing quarterly results or outlooks the night before, setting the stage for the sell-off in the technology sector. Qualcomm was the latest company to announce dismal news accompanied by a 1% drop in share prices. It announced plans to slash jobs and spending in the face of rising competition. Here's Nomura Securities Analyst Romit Shah. We were expecting them to cut costs by about or announce a restructuring of around 500 million. And what they've announced uh, this afternoon is a cut of almost one and a half billion. So almost three times as big as what we were expecting. And that's going to come primarily from headcount as well as a reduction of the number of offices. And it sounds like they're going to be moving some resources into some lower cost regions. The other thing that they said is that they're, um, they're looking at um, potentially breaking up the company, uh, which is pretty significant because when most investors do the sum of the parts analysis on Qualcomm, uh, looking at the licensing business as well as the chipset business, you come up with a value that's um, uh, significantly higher than where the stock is trading at today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 68 points to 17,851. The broad-paced S&P 500 dropped uh, 0.2% to 2,114, while the tech-rich NASDAQ Composite Index sank uh, 36 points of 0.7% to 5,171. Hong Kong equities slipped 1%, tracking losses in New York. Market sentiment was dampened by weakness in global markets. And Shanghai's benchmark stock index closed up 0.2%, despite some profit-taking, closing above the, f- the key 4,000 point level. Even so, business confidence on the mainland has slumped to its lowest level in more than six years. The MNI China business sentiment gauge of current business conditions sank to 48.8 this month from 53.3 in June. MNI indicators, which is owned by the Deutsche Börse, said that it was the lowest reading since January 2009. China clearly has bigger problems to worry about then than the stock market. Here's J.P. Morgan Fund's chief global strategist, David Kelly, on Bloomberg. Problem is that you look at the GDP numbers in China, they really look like they're too strong based on what we're seeing in housing, in autos, and in exports. So it looks like the GDP growth is overstated, but the GDP growth is nothing like the debt growth. The total mm-hmm. growth in, in, in debt in China is still running way above what you'd expect given an economy even growing this fast. So there's a lot of numbers that don't quite add up. And I, I am a little bit concerned about the Chinese government's uh, clear interest in in propping up the the, the stock market um, but you know you've got to almost judge china by a, by a different yardstick than you would the united states or europe or japan uh, they have a very controlled financial system uh, you know we normally talk about you know debt bubbles as if they're going to burst in some cataclysmic uh, explosion I, I sort of think in china more of a debt balloon where you'll see the air gradually come out but i think that's actually possible in a, in a Chinese economy. I think China will grow more slowly, but I don't think it'll explode in a way that causes a, a financial crisis around the world. Tobias, I can see you smiling at that. You agree that uh, things are not adding up there, huh? I fully agree that sometimes the numbers are relatively cooked. But indeed, one important point is it's not as much too difficult to call a bubble, 
but to find the moment at which it pops. And if you call that too early, you're the one who gets burned. Mm. The International Monetary Fund has expressed concern over the transparency of China's financial markets. The IMF says it raised those worries in a meeting with Chinese officials last month. The discussions were about including the yuan in uh, the basket of, uh, in the fund's basket of currencies. Beijing, of course, has been lobbying the IMF to include the yuan in the basket to boost the country's global clout. And the talks were held before the stock market rally. Last month, prompting Beijing to take to stage its biggest ever rescue of the stock market. All right, let's bring in our first guest for this morning, Michael Gibbs Harris, who is a management director at MGH Asset Management. Good morning, Michael. Morning, Michael. What is it that the IMF is actually concerned about? I think he's probably concerned with with a few things. First of all, that. Um as Tobias has said earlier on this morning, that you know, there is an increase in the amount of debt that's, that's occurring in China, and it's fairly badly documented. But, it, but equally at the same time, to go and get the relationship between uh, the increase in debt and the increase in GMP is increasingly difficult because no one actually trusts the numbers which comes out of uh, China. They never have. They probably won't for, for, for several years in the future. So would you say, Michael, is it that or is it this intervention, Beijing's intervention in stock markets, if at all, that is going to impact the IMF's decision to include the yuan in its basket of currencies? I think, from, I think that the intervention in the stock market hasn't helped um, the, the case for the, for the yuan to be included in its basket of, of currencies. But also I think that there's a an issue of you know of a lack of convertibility and you know, because of that uh, until the the yuan becomes much more convertible it probably isn't going to be included in the basket Michael, you know, analysts have been sort of looking at the Chinese stock markets and saying that there's one simple trading rule that works and that is buy when the market opens, sell at the close repeat. <laughs> is, is this true that, you know, a buy and hold strategy is not a good one, but, uh, you know, that you should be more active? Well, it's certainly, I mean, because it's been so volatile that um, it's been you know, possible if you're a nimble trader to make more money than the overall index, but you have to be one very skillful and I think probably very lucky in order to make more money than just you know, a typical buy and hold um, strategy. Tobias, what do you think? I mean, isn't there a ban on same-day trading in China? In, uh, what you would have is if you buy the same day, you can only uh, sell out the stocks the next day. However, if you would have either an inventory or if you would trade, let's say, the futures, these things would be possible. And what is really funny lately, and that was more during the market route, uh, there were moments that were more uh, vulnerable to price drops than others. For example, um, the last half hour before the trading break and of course the last half hour of the trading day the latter one being when most of the margin selling came in so there are some patterns i would tend over the past month to very much disagree with buy the open show the close that would mm. have hurt quite a lot on most of the trading days during the route what do you think michael i think i agree with uh, tobias that um you know, obviously things are being affected by by margins and when people are being forced to sell they're trying to go and do it at the end of at the end of trading sessions. And I think that the other factor as well is that no one's really wanted to hold an inventory overnight. And that's probably why, why you've seen selling in the last half hour. 
All right. Well, um, Chinese shares in Hong Kong have dropped. You know, investors appear to be spooked also by state uh, intervention and the state of the economy. Would you say that uh, the, 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 the movement of Chinese shares in Hong Kong are a true indicator of market sentiment rather than what you're seeing on Chinese stock exchanges? I think that uh, what you're seeing in Hong Kong is a true indicator of the sentiment in Hong Kong. And what you're seeing in China is, is a, probably a reasonable indicator of the sentiment in, in China. Um, I think that the reason for the difference is because in Hong Kong you have more alternatives in which you can invest. And uh, also you're subject to different mon- monetary conditions. Whereas in China, um, if, you, if really the only things which you can buy are domestic and you've got you know, the normal investment uh, um, opportunities of real estate, stocks or bonds or cash, then, then you're much more, more limited. And for a while it looked as though the only game in town was, uh, was equities. Tobias? Yeah, Michael, can I ask one question? What intrigues me a lot is that during the whole market route and recovery, that massive premium that the A shares still command compared to their H shares in Hong Kong has actually stayed the same or even rose. What's your opinion on that one? I think at some stage it has to be arbitraged away. But when is, uh, you know, it's going to be probably take a long, long time because you've got the capital constraints in, uh, in both entering and leaving the, the mainland market. And it does seem you know, absurd that you can you know, that you can buy stuff in Hong Kong at a significant discount to, to what they are in in, uh, in the mainland. Um, I would expect that discount to narrow at, at some stage, but uh, given the pretty much overwhelming negative sentiment towards the Chinese economy from outside China, I don't ex- expect it to occur uh, soon. Michael, uh, turning to sort of U.S. stocks, um, you know, if you look at Apple, it actually reported that net income for the quarter ending June 27th jumped 38%. uh, But traders were focused on a revenue forecast that fell shy of expectations. And, of course, commentary from analysts uh, saying that uh, iPhones uh, sales missed expectations. This market reaction to Apple, what does it show? I think if you look at, at Apple over the last two or three years, the, the performance of the stock has really reflected whether or not earnings estimates have been rising or falling. And quite a few of the analysts have, have downgraded their estimates uh, after this most recent set of results. So it probably looks as, as though it's, it's in for a tough six to nine months. And uh, what are you expecting from the U.S. with a view to interest rates? September, yes or no? Yes. Yes. As, a, as a quick answer, I think that you can make the case that now that the U.S. economy is, is doing reasonably well, it's in a, a fairly strong position, um, hiring's increasing, There's far, there appears to be far less slack in the economy than there used to be. Um, there are some signs of, uh, of speculation. I mean, everybody talks about you know, how much the Chinese economy is in a bubble, but if you look at the NASDAQ, it's, a, it's at a higher valuation than, than the Shanghai Composite. Um, and so um, you know, I think that there's good reason now to, to, to raise rates as, as soon as they can. Tobias, you agree? Yes, but whether they will do it is a second. Whether they will do it is... It's a second question. I fear they're <laughs> just going to play the game and extend. So, okay. So, again, waiting and watching and sort of no clear answers. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Michael. That is Michael Gibbs-Harris, and he is a director at MGH Asset Management. Time to take a quick look now at the numbers this morning. The Nikkei is up four-tenths of a percent to 20,682. Australia's ASX 200 index is down 0.18 percent to 5,593. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.09 US dollars. One U.S. dollar buys you 124.08 yen and uh, one pound sterling is worth 12 Hong Kong dollars and 10 cents and one U.S. dollar and 56 cents. Well, we'll be back to talk more about the Iran nuclear deal. That's right after this. To prevent Middle East respiratory syndrome, always observe personal hygiene. Before traveling, consult your doctor about the risk of the trip. While traveling, avoid contact with sick persons and stay away from animals, especially camels. Don't consume raw or undercooked animal products. If you feel unwell after returning to Hong Kong, see a doctor right away and explain your recent travel history. For details, please visit www.chp.gov.hk. Come on, baby, like my fire. The time is now 8.19 a.m. And after 20 months of negotiations, Iran has agreed on a long-term nuclear deal with the P5 plus one group of world powers to limit its nuclear activities in return for a lift on sanctions. But what does that exactly mean for business? Let's bring in IHS Global Insights Asia-Pacific Chief Economist Rajiv Biswas. Good morning, Rajiv. Rajiv, everyone is talking about how historic this deal is, but the question is how? What exactly does it mean? Well, I think uh, there's still some political hurdles to go, particularly uh, the U.S. Congress has a 60-day review process. But assuming that it somehow gets through the various political hurdles, what would happen is that probably sometime uh, early next year, economic sanctions would be lifted once the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency can verify that Iran has actually implemented the nuclear commitments it made under this new deal. And if the, that happens and, and economic sanctions are lifted by the EU, by the US, and some of the UN economic sanctions are also lifted, that then opens up considerable opportunities in the Iranian market for the Asia-Pacific economies. Of course, one of the key sanctions that has been in place is sanctions on exports of Iranian energy, particularly oil. And Asia is actually a very big importer of uh, Iranian oil. So one of the most immediate benefits for Asia is that it would be able to import more Iranian oil. Um, And of course, for many years, Iran's oil and gas sector has also been very much held back by the impact of sanctions uh, in terms of technology, in terms of equipment. So it would also open up the potential for the oil and gas sector to accelerate its development. And that also creates opportunities for Asian oil and gas companies. I think particularly China is likely to be a very active investor in the Iranian oil and gas sector once sanctions are lifted. India also has interest in uh, uh, Iran as well. Tobias, you have a question? Yeah, what I find most interesting indeed is what you mentioned, the oil is the, the key point here. What do you think the reactions in, let's say, Moscow would be to this nice deal? 
at the moment, the, Russia also has very substantial new deals with Asia. We've seen a very big pivot from Russia towards the markets in Asia, particularly China, but also to increase its exports to India. So I think in the broader context, uh, this is not a, not a very big surprise for them. Of course, it increases competition. In particular, what's very important is that Iran has very large uh, gas reserves. And I think the lifting of sanctions would really open up the possibility that Iran becomes a much bigger player in world uh, gas markets. And that, of course, could increase competition with Russia. Um, but I think there's still tremendous opportunities for both Russia and Iran in the Asian market because the Asian demand for gas is growing very rapidly. Um, we've already seen this very big deal between Russia and China, but I think also India is now looking towards Iran as a potential large source of uh, gas supply in the future. Uh, so I think there is still a lot of potential because India is now emerging also as a very large economy in the global stage. The uh, Prime Minister Modi is obviously trying to accelerate Indian economic yeah. development, and that will very much boost uh, Indian energy demand as well. On the other side of the coin, of course, it's not all about Iranian exports to Asia. It's also about Asian exports into the Iranian market. And again, if sanctions are lifted, it does mean that the Iranian domestic market becomes much more attractive uh, for many Asian exporters or manufacturers. At the moment, its GDP is about $360 billion, uh, which makes it a relatively large emerging market. And All right. Rajiv, thanks so much. Unfortunately, we are out of time. That is Rajiv Biswas, and he is the Asia-Pacific Chief Economist for IHS Global Insight. Well, analysts are raising concerns that China's economic slowdown, stock and property bubbles look like Japan's economic slowdown in the 1990s. How true is this? Let's ask Bloomberg News Chief Asia Economics Correspondent, Enda Curran. Good morning, Enda. Good morning. And uh, what is it that Japan and China's economies currently have in common? So, look, it's obviously a very divisive debate. Um, there are two camps on this. There are those who warn that China is flashing the danger signals that Japan showed back in the late 80s, the quick build-up in debt, the demographic trajectory, or the massive um, stock market bubble, which we've seen over the last year, all of which ended, obviously, in a tremendous crash in Japan. So there are those analysts who say, listen, if, Japan doesn't, if China doesn't learn the lessons of Japan very soon, it's going to end up in the same boat. And adding fuel to it recently has been two new reports. HSBC and Oxford Economics have come out with um, their own sets of analysis saying there are enough similarities between both to at least merit caution. But there are also differences, are there not? Like uh, demographics, for example. Is there any reason to be concerned that China will also experience a lost decade? Well, you're absolutely right. There are, of course, differences. And one of the biggest one is that China's economy, where it is now, is at a much less developed stage than where Japan was when it had hit its crash back in 89-90. So China has much more potential still to grow. However, that said, it's the pace of debt build-up in China that has most analysts concerned. The to total debt in China is now at 282% of GDP, and a lot of that has been added since 2007 alone, as the Chinese government pumped stimulus into the economy to keep things going. Demographics right now aren't at the same level of concern as Japan, but it's where will they be in 10, 20 years' time with the aging population. So it's, it's a confluence of issues that um, has some people worried.
Tobias? Yeah, can I ask one question regarding the debt build-up? Because yeah. maybe, in my opinion, but that could be wrong, um, what I would see in Japan is maybe more wise or sensible investments than what we're currently seeing in China, where just everything's being thrown on infrastructure that most likely will never be lived in, for example. But the question is how much of the um, credit in Japan was efficiently allocated back in the 80s. I mean, they were saddled with zombie companies um, who were, um, you know, struggling with debt for decades afterwards. So not all of the borrowing in Japan was officially spent either, right? So I think that's where, the, that's where people point to some of what's happening in China. Not all of the borrowing is going to the kind of infrastructure and efficient companies that will drive the economy forward. And uh, China's latest Q2 GDP figures seem to have surprised on the upside. You know, considering all of these weaknesses in the economy, can this figure be trusted? Well, look, again, that's another debate. We had a technical point last week where Capital Economics in London were arguing China doesn't calculate the deflator correctly, i.e. they're not factoring in inflation properly into how they how they get, uh, come up with their GDP number. I think the point is that people feel China's economy has had a rough patch, but it seems to have stabilized in the last quarter. And that going forward, the stimulus, the rate cuts, the reserve ratio cuts, and the fiscal um, spending that they're doing through the local government debt swap might come together and, and help growth. But for sure, China is slowing down, and, and no one expects a return to the kind of double-digit pace of experience in the last decade. All right, Enda, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Enda Curran, and he is the Chief Asia Economics Correspondent for Bloomberg News. Well, time to take another look at the numbers before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is up four-tenths of a percent to 20,679. Australia's ASX 200 index is down 0.09% to 5,598. And Seoul's Kospi down two-tenths of a percent to 20. Excuse me, 2060. Gold is currently valued at $1,092.90 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $56.08. Tobias, oh, here we are. It's the end of the show. What is it that we should be keeping our eyes on in financial markets? What I think is relatively interesting now is that all commodities have been dropping like a rock. And from that perspective, also, I'd like to look at the Iranian deal far more from a negative perspective to Russia because you're going to get a lot more crude and a lot more gas openly on the market. It's not going to help them. But if you look at the bigger picture, gold is going down partly because of the expected, uh, the possibility of a rate rise, but also things like copper and industrial commodities are coming down. So the interesting thing, as far as I would be concerned, is that commodity markets are actually going down quite aggressively. And on the other hand, uh, global equity markets are not really reflecting anything of that. So it's quiet in the equity side mm. and there's quite a lot of drop on the commodity side. Let's see which one will tackle the other. This drop in commodities, does this uh, signal concern in sort of uh, the global environment that we should be watching out for? Uh, you could see it partly as um, expectations of lower growth in the world economy, expectations of lower growth in big consumers like China, and partly you could see it as possible expectations of rate hikes. All right. Tobias, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Tobias Hexter is an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Finance at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast today. It'll be mainly cloudy with showers and a few squally thunderstorms. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 83%. 
Time for the half-hour news summary with Judd Boaz. Greek MPs are preparing to vote on a second round of bailout measures in what could be another test of the leadership of the Prime Minister, Alexei Tsipras. The measures include major changes to the banking and judicial sectors, which need to be ratified before formal negotiations on a new bailout deal can take place. 86 billion euros are at stake. The Greek Interior Minister, Nikos Voutsis, said much rested on the outcome of the vote. It's a critical vote for the future of the country, for Parliament, for the duty of all deputies to say yes or no. And at this crucial moment, everyone will take responsibility for their own actions. That was the message from the Prime Minister. Everyone is responsible. Thousands of anti-austerity protesters have gathered outside Parliament in Athens. A handful of petrol bombs were lobbed in the direction of the security forces earlier. Police in Texas investigating the death of a black woman in their custody have released a revised version of the video footage showing her arrest. They denied the initial video had been edited. The case of Sandra Bland is the latest to put a strain on relations between police and African Americans in the U.S. The Bland family lawyer, Cannon Lambert, said the video showed the confrontation could easily have been avoided. There was very little reason that can be gleaned from the dash cam why Sandy had to be asked to put her cigarette out. Why Sandy had to be asked to get out of her car. Why Sandy had to be subject 